the geopolitical line of divide is more important than the sharing illiberal values. So you cannot just suddenly decide that the U.S. would say, oh, yeah, in fact, the kind of Cold War period, maybe, okay, let's agree to go back to that, because you have a lot of European countries <laughs> for whom Cold War cannot be the reference, all the Central and Eastern European countries. For them, it can only be the 90s. That kind of comparison with Western colonial experience to interpret what is happening now in Russia, it's bring more, it's more interesting, and it's also tell us that we need time. Howdy, folks. Welcome to The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock. The Russia Guy, what is it? The Russia Guy is a podcast where I interview journalists, scholars, and occasionally activists working on or in Russia. The show has been online since September 2017, so I'll be celebrating five years later this year. And I humbly invite you to make a contribution at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock just to show your support or to help offset the costs of all the software subscriptions that I have that I use to make this show. Thank you very much also to those of you already contributing. On today's show, my guest is Marlene Laurel, the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies and the Illiberalism Studies Program at George Washington University. Dr. Laurel wrote a book last year titled, Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. And it has remarkable applications to today's crisis in Ukraine. Check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to go buy that book. I recommend it very much. It's excellent. The book itself deals with a lot more than the geopolitical ramifications of Russian illiberalism, but we focused mainly on this aspect, given what's happening now in the news. I'll warn you now that a bit later in the show, my audio starts to crackle a bit. Marlene's sounds great all the way through, but mine kind of degrades a bit. So apologies for that. All right, let's get to the interview. How much is your book based on specifically Putin and how much is it on his regime? Like, are you going to have to rewrite this when the next guy comes in? Yeah, that's a good question. No, I think it would still be uh, readable once the next guy will come in because I think there are many aspects that are in fact kind of more long term that are more about Russia globally as a country, whoever is in power than just about the regime. And then because I think that even the day Putin is leaving, the structure that was built around him would still largely be there. So the same kind of cluster of influence, the same kind of different groups with different vision of what should be the place of Russia, I think all that will still be there. 
So I don't believe in a kind of, you know, big revolutionary day where suddenly we will wake up and Russia will be a democratic pro-US <laughs> country very rapidly. Right. Although I'm sure we'll never hear the end of like that trope of today we woke up in a different country. I mean, that's like the start of a thousand op-eds that I know I feel like I've read. But but um, <laughs> OK, good. What role does illiberal, illiberalism, I'm going to struggle pronouncing that, I'm going to warn you. <laughs> what role does illiberalism play in Russia's longstanding but suddenly you know, accelerated push for revision of Europe's security ar- architecture? Because I know when people are looking at your book in the context of today's news, one of the big questions they're going to have is how does this play into the Ukraine business? Exactly. Yeah. And I think it depends how we want to define illiberalism. Okay. If we define illiberalism as the refusal of political liberalism, that is the refusal of considering that individual rights are more important than collective rights or state power, mm-hmm. then I think it's pretty marginal. So here I really stand in opposition with all those who see Russia as the core enemy of liberal democracy, a country who wants to destroy liberal democracy per principle because it's afraid of it. If we define illiberalism not so much as an answer to political liberalism, but as an answer to geopolitical liberalism in the sense of a Western-less or US-led normative international order with the right to interfere in the name of human rights, then I think illiberalism is core for Russia in understanding its its push for the revision of European security architecture, because Russia considers that the U.S.-led normative international order is in fact a cover-up for some U.S. domination over Europe for Russia's marginalization, and therefore Russia should fight against when it still has some leverage and some windows of opportunities before this closed. And so... I think the, the feeling of being pressured by time is very important if we want to understand the current crisis. I think they really see the Moscow perspective that there is a window of opportunities where Russia can still push and try to force the U.S. to sit at the table and try to rediscuss the, the European uh, architecture. They think that, okay, Biden said he would be busy with China. Germany doesn't have a real leadership, the French president Macron is busy with his own presidential re-election, everybody is kind of uh, doing, you know, post-pandemic recovery. So for me, the the Russia's decision, if we want to understand what is happening now, it's more strategic than ideological in the sense that it's fighting against U.S. liberal order more than against liberalism as a democratic system. So in that sense, it makes sense why they would start push, why the Kremlin would would push you know the agenda it has more recently why it would start now but it seems as though from that from that perspective the window has opened but it's not necessarily shutting on them right because i mean the the, the my understanding is that the consensus in places like moscow and probably beijing as well is that the sun is setting on the us led liberal international order and so like you know you could st- you could start now or if you wait 5 years you'll be even in an even better position because americans are just getting weaker and weaker turning inward Etc. And you know the the rest of the world is growing stronger as well. It's not just that the old West is declining; it's that the multipolar world is is blossoming and so on. And so, is it your impression that Russia will continue to pursue this, or that it feels like this is the strike while the iron's hot, or is that is, is that a bad metaphor? Because that implies that the iron is will cool. I think I think Russia has both perceptions. So, and it probably depends who of the elites are we talking about uh, and which region of the world are we talking about. I think they have this global vision of, yes, the old West is declining. In any case, in a few years, 
there will be maybe not Russia itself will be more powerful, but the rest of the world will be more powerful and especially China and the West will be weaker and more even more divided than it is now. So that will stay on the long run. Where they see the time is pressing is that they feel that the U.S. is slowly getting Ukraine inside the NATO world, even if it's not an official membership. And on that, they think the windows of opportunities where it won't be possible after to challenge Ukraine's belonging, potential belongings to NATO, that they think this window is closing. I see. Okay. Because they realize, they think that it's not about official membership. It's just about kind of integrating so much Ukraine in bilateral relations with U.S. military, U.K. military, some European countries. And then after, it would be impossible to try to get Ukraine out without the big war. Right. While now they think they can still have a kind of low-level war or, or kind of polit- geopolitical pressure without the, the big conflict arriving. In the book, Is Russia Fascist? You say that Russia reflects uh, Europe's weaknesses and internal contradictions. Now, I won't try to summarize what those weaknesses and contradictions are because they are, they are many. But if Europe, say, reconsolidates around illiberalism, and I don't know if that's necessarily where we're trending today, but it seemed like we were a few years ago, right? Um, and it, we, could, we could be back there, and the United States could certainly be back there you know, in the next, <laughs> in the next election. But if that were to happen, according to how you view Russia's policies, maybe you've already kind of answered this because you said that it's about the international order, not so much about ideology, but would that help relations with Russia if we just became dictatorships ourselves or had a li- more liberal, you know, leaders with that, would that kind of smooth things over with, with Moscow? So he also, I think it depends on the region of the world. If it's globally on the international scene, it's easier for Russia to work with illiberal leaders who don't have any normative agenda to export except their own illiberalism. But that would mean like respect for state sovereignty, no multilateral institution, no interference. So it's easier to negotiate with these kind of leaders than it is with leaders who have a normative order. Doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, with Erdogan, is also an illiberal leader, but they can have some kind of clear <laughs> specific conflict. But for example, with Modi, it's, it's a good relationship. If it's about Europe, here I think the problem is not liberal or illiberal leader. The problem is the geopolitical choice of either a transatlantic Europe or a more continental Europe. And so Moscow doesn't really care about the kind of philosophical worldviews of European leaders, it cares about their geopolitical vision. And I think the best example is Poland for me, right? Poland is as illiberal as Russia, but it's geopolitically a very transatlantic country. So they cannot be friends, even if they share a lot on their illiberalism. The geopolitical line of divide is more important than the sharing illiberal uh, 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 values. So I think here also it depends. I mean, on, in Europe, it's really about geopolitics. If it's about the rest of the world, then everything that would weaken the normative multilateral international order is good for any leaders who want to be back to a kind of very traditional uh, state sovereignty without any external control. In the book, you, you have this, this comparison, very interesting comparison that you draw between Putin and Charles de Gaulle. And in that, you, you come to this conclusion where you suggest that de Gaulle was 
he really was the man for the moment when there was this, this kind of national trauma and so on, and he he that it, 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 it all kind of came together for him, and and that really bolstered his position as a as a leader or ruler or whatever. But that he kind of that the nation outgrew him, so to speak. And you suggest that younger Russians are slowly nearing the quote is slowly nearing the end of the recovery time, where the country accepts Putin's traditional values. And emotional and cultural securitization. That's, the, that's, that's a phrase from the book. In your view, what's to stop today's young liberals from just becoming, you know, tomorrow's conservatives or loyal subjects or whatever? What's to stop that from just playing out fathers and sons, demons, like some kind of, there's some, I'm sure there's some golden age Russian literature to, that I should be citing. But why, why is that not just going to happen? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point, and that's usually a problem we have as scholars when we study young people, is that it's not easy to know if what makes them different from older generation is because they are young, and so when they will be older, they will just be sharing <laughs> the same need for securitization, or if it's really a generational feature that will stay longer, and we don't know yet. What I think will be happening is that this younger generation, they will be more polarized. There will be more kind of clearly conservative, liberal constituency that will really rely on the kind of the state as a producer of security, both kind of ideological, but also material security, and a more liberal constituency. And we see these liberal constituencies tend to grow sociologically. At the same time, they also tend to emigrate. So on the long run, depending on the flow of immigration, it's unclear how they will be. Uh, staying. What I think is key that to understand that being a liberal in Russia today doesn't necessarily mean being a pro-Western oriented, can be means to be pro-democracy, but not pro-liberal in the sense, not necessarily in favor of multiculturalism. And I think with Navalny, we had a good example on how you can be liberal and democrat for your own group, very xenophobic and nationalist on some other aspect. Mm -hmm. And then you can be a liberal and a democratic and still wanted Russia to be a great power and not wanted Russia to be a kind of under uh, uh, what is seen as U.S. domination. So you could imagine a kind of patriotic liberal generation arriving in power and still creating difficulties for the U.S. in terms of uh, uh, sharing the, the, the view of, uh, of, uh, of Europe. And then what we see emerging is a gap between generations inside the liberal mindset. So the new generation of liberal, those who are in their 20s, seems to be very globalized. You know, they do, they do cancel culture. There was a lot of discussion around the Black Lives Matter movement. And then you have this kind of old-fashioned generation of the liberals from the 90s that were much more kind of ambiguous on their, their, their support for this kind of transformation. So here also you can see that it's unclear what really means liberal right. in Russia. So maybe cancer culture will get rid of, will, will, will throw Putin out of power. <laughs> um, okay. A lot of the book, it seems to me, is meant as a kind of counter argument or a corrective to common comments that, you know, Putin is just a reincarnated Mussolini or he's the Hitler 2.0 and things like that. You know, the, the you know, is Russia fascist? That's obviously you're you're engaging those those comparisons directly. So the the kind of undercurrent or the you know the overt argument of the of what you've written is that what we see in Russia these are I mean I've already said it reflections of what happens in the West that that we should be connecting Russia's development to things that have developed in the Western world and you say that Russia's supposed imperialism which is you know very much on the minds of people today is better understood as a classic feature of post-colonialism, 
that can be found, you know, in, in today's democratic regimes. What's the difference here between Russia is fascist and Russia is, is just another post-colonial power? My position is that, so I'm critical of the literature that interprets Russia's aggressive policy in the post-Soviet space as explainable only by the nature, the authoritarian nature of the Putin's regime. For me, it's two different things. Russia could be a democratic country. I'm not sure it would be less assertive in the post-Soviet space. Then if we look historically, second half of the 20th century, the big imperial or colonial countries were Western <laughs> liberal uh, uh, democracy at that time. So, so for me, I think it's, it's important to dissociate the nature of the regime and the position of Russia toward its uh, uh, near abroad. And for me, a better kind of comparative tool is to look at European decolonization and especially at the, the French one, which I, I, I know well, because I see a lot of parallels between the difficulties to decolonize in France and uh, uh, what Russia is doing in the, in the post-Soviet space. The French difficult decolonization was about keeping good friends as state leaders, having military alliance to protect them, even if they were dictatorship against uh, a street revolution controlling markets so it's easier for the French firms to, to be given priority, pushing competitors away, cultivating cultural, linguistic connection, migration flow, so that the decolonized country, even if they are state sovereign, are still remaining geopolitically, financially, culturally in the orbit of the former colonial center. For me, it's very much what Russia is trying to do, that I see Russia still kind of fighting with its colonial past meaning that it's not ready to let the former colony go geopolitically because it conceives itself as a kind of unsecured state that needs this kind of buffer zone, especially with, with Europe. So for me, putting that kind of comparison with Western colonial experience to interpret what is happening now in Russia, it's bring more, it's more interesting. And it also tells us that we need time. And it's not all about the nature of the regime. It's not only because Putin is a bad guy. It would be the same with a better guy. It just complicated to move from an empire to a nation state and to accept that your cultural and geopolitical influence is shrinking. And it's even more important for Russia that, as you know, Russia's demography is shrinking, the Russian population control over the territory is shrinking. So there is a lot of anxieties in becoming a nation state. And so for me, that's part of the discussion. And that's the key case with Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is a key country. It's the, the kind of the motherland of Russia historically. It's not a country that can be let go very easily. And I think we have to not necessarily accept that geopolitically, but to recognize that it's not just like, oh, they are independent. They can do whatever they want. It's more complicated seen from the Russian side because it's really about national identity construction. And that takes time. Oh, 
So looking at this from the perspective of Western European post-colonial experience, what are like a couple of the possibilities in terms of how this could unfold along Russia's periphery? I mean, one is that everybody develops as beautiful, flourishing liberal democracies and everybody accepts each other's sovereignty and we, and we just hug each other at every opportunity or what, like desolation and, and fire? I mean, like what, what are, how would you describe the, the two kind of polar opposites of possibility here? Well, I think the, uh, b- both of them are, are, I mean, the first one is impossible. The second is a, <laughs> is a bad one. So we need to be inventive <laughs> and have a third one. But I think my perspective with that, we should be, we should have been much more careful in kind of projecting the other post-Soviet countries are example of liberal democracy fighting against the bad Russian guy. Their, their success are much more limited that they want to to say that doesn't mean we don't want to support them, but I think kind of in terms of the conflict we have now, discussing, the, I mean, being able to recognize that Ukraine is not ready for EU or NATO uh, membership and kind of not excluding that, but kind of postponing that in the for a kind of long-term future and just discussing much more concrete, but not symbolically uh, loaded solution would be the best way to try to both help Ukraine and not kind of antagonize Russia. So all the discussion about the kind of neutrality. I mean, when we cannot go at war and we don't have solution, then neutrality is one of the solutions. And that's the one that was used during the Cold War for Finland or for Austria at the beginning. Do you see any means of reconciliation to what you described as, in the book as the inability to refer to the same normalcy between Russia and the West? Because you, you, I thought it was fascinating. You talk about how there's this difference of, uh, what is it? Difference of periods of reference, I think, is how you describe it. Mainly that when the West talks about normalcy, they're talking about the early 90s and just like, you know, (laughs) my childhood, essentially. Animaniacs are on TV. uh, I don't know. Like, you know, it's just it's just fun times. And for for Moscow, it's it's the it's the Cold War decades. Those that that's that was normal. That was when things made sense. And, you know, this is this this need to reconcile or, or synchronize the, the concept of normalcy would go a long way to better, better negotiations. Now, that's a very interesting idea. Does that mean that if the West just learns to talk better to Russia, that that would, that would reconcile things? Because I mean, in some respects, it's like the challenge here is integrating Russia as a legitimate stakeholder in Europe, making them feel like they're, that they're invested in this because they don't feel that way now, right? They feel left out. Now, can you do that in purely rhetorical or ideological terms? Can you just change the way that we talk about it? Can we just say, we acknowledge your trauma and your et cetera and so forth, but NATO's open door, et cetera. We're still doing all of that. We're still doing it. Like, can, can, how, much of the, how much of this is just 
something we could say or how much of it? I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm getting my question. But <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? No, I think just just the the rhetorics will not be enough. It's the Russia now wants some kind of very concrete decision and things to be put on the paper. And I think that's all the the credit they have been building up uh, now is really about having something written that would be a kind of moratorium on, on NATO expansion especially in relation to Ukraine even more than, than to Georgia. And, and so that, I think, is the key thing. They want something written in paper, but they still, they still function in a Cold War mentality, and in fact, the, the U.S. also, by thinking that it's just a U.S.-Russia negotiation, like if it was in the, in the Cold War period, because now the number of actors has multiplied. So you cannot just suddenly decide that the U.S. would say, oh, yeah, in fact, the kind of Cold War period, maybe, okay, let's agree to go back to that, because you have a lot of European countries <laughs> for whom Cold War cannot be the reference, all the Central and Eastern European countries. For them, it can only be the 90s. So all these actors, you have to take them into consideration. And that the problem is that EU is a neighbor. So for me, the big issue is not so much US and Russia. The key issue is that you don't have any unity of the EU in terms of deciding how they want to frame that. Is that each time the EU or the Western Europe would potentially try to kind of build a narrative that would fit better Russia's need, that would be received by the Central and Eastern European as something, countries as something putting them in danger. Right? So for me, the, the key issue is how Europe manages the anxiety of Central and Eastern Europe and Russia's anxieties. And that's the key issue, that how do we fit both of them inside the, the same kind of a portfolio? And that has become, and probably we missed the moment where it was still doable. And now that it has been antagonized, it will be very difficult to deconstruct because now it's part of nation building and kind of rhetoric of state power and state projection for each of them. Poland, the Baltic state, Ukraine, Russia. So how you deconstruct that, that would be much more challenging that kind of the 80s time where you just need the two big powers to agree on something. You've been listening to The Russia Guy. On today's episode, you heard from Marlene Laurel, a scholar at George Washington University and the author of the 2021 book, Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. Check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to go buy that book. As always, you can support this show at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. Those of you already contributing, thank you very much. Thank you also for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пеки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля.